You're going to need a Bible this morning. You will be greatly helped by a Bible this morning because we're going to do something a little unique. If you're visiting with us or haven't been here in a long time, this is not what we normally do on a Sunday morning at this time. Um, But we did just finish the book of Joshua. Last week we had a reading service. And uh, thank you to all the readers who helped us charge through that long book. And uh, thank you for those who turned in questions. I'm going to try to get to most of those questions. So that's what we'll be doing this morning. I'm going to ask that there be no no hands raised because I do want to get to all the questions, if I can, of those that were, that were uh, written and sent in. Um, however, if you do have a question, because I do not purport to be an oracle this morning, um, please follow it up to me face-to-face or uh, with an email or something. Put a uh, note in my box. I'd love to follow up with you this morning. I feel rather inadequate to do this, um, but I was reading in Second Corinthians where um, the Spirit makes us adequate, and in our weakness, He is strong. So I am excited to dive into um, the book of Joshua and answer some of your questions this morning. Just a few principles for how to do this, maybe even a little bit of, of why to do this. Um, the 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 method that we want to we want to understand is this is this is one book. Okay, so our Bible is is one book. It's telling one story from beginning to end. Um, it's a long story, and there are various um, ways that the story is told. There's various genres in this book. There's poetry. There's wisdom literature. There are letters written to churches. There's history. There are all kinds of things um, in the scriptures. But Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, a familiar passage to many of us, says that all scripture is breathed out by God. And to Paul, that would have meant the Old Testament. Um, he had the Old Testament. Um, those were that was the Bible that he has, Jesus's Bible. And it says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So we believe that. We believe what the scriptures say, and we believe that um, that this scripture, this book, Joshua, is profitable to us. Also, I've mentioned this in, uh, in this series, but two passages in the New Testament as well that kind of help control and guide where we go with something like this um, is Romans 15.4. Um, and there's a larger context here, um, but in order to get to things, I just wanted to take this verse out. Uh, Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So one of the things I want to do this morning is to give us hope, is to help us understand that, that we have hope through the Scriptures and that these Scriptures were written um, in some way, shape, or form to us and for us. First Corinthians 10, 11 says something very similar. Now these things happened to them as an example, them being the children of Israel, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so God in his plan worked through many men um, to leave a, a, um, a record of the people of Israel and then um, God's people, the church in the New Testament and one of the, the greatest miracles of history is the book that you hold in your hand. That this book with 66 books written by more than 40 men over a period of 1,500 years is one story, one book, superintended and guided by the Spirit of God to come into your lap right now. So what, what an incredible thing. And so I'm going to pray, and I'll put the, 
the uh, questions up on the screen. You have basically a blank sheet in your notes. That's just for you to do whatever you will to indict me with the words that I say by writing them down. So just try to keep up in that way. All right? Put your hand down, John. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and this opportunity. God, I pray that you would guide us. Pray that you would help us. Um, We are tired, some of us, and so I pray that you would keep us uh, awake and alert. Help us to um, depend on your spirit to give us insight and illumination. Lord, I pray that you would guide what I say and that you would um, help uh, people to think like the Bereans and to check what I have to say with the scriptures. That They would be diligent to do that. Lord, thank you for a congregation that loves your word. Help us to increase in our knowledge of it and in our application of it in our lives. Um, please guide us this morning and show us what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. I forgot one thing I wanted to do. How many of you, this was the first time you'd heard a sermon series all the way through the book of Joshua? First time you've ever heard a sermon series all the way through the book of Joshua, okay? Anybody the first time you've ever been through the book of Joshua? Okay, all right, good. So we've got a little bit of experience here and uh, we'll go ahead and dive in to the questions if this works. There we go. Uh, someone asked this, many places in Joshua it says, and the Lord spoke. Did the Lord speak in an audible voice to Joshua, or how did God communicate with Joshua? Uh, Our understanding of the scriptures is that God has communicated in various ways um, to his people, but for the most part, um, the vast amount of times that this appears in the scripture, I think we are to assume that God spoke in an audible voice to um, to people. So you open up Joshua 1, and the first chapter is God speaking to Joshua. Joshua. Um, uh, God very well could and in some places does communicate in visions and in dreams. Um, But it seems that in a lot of places in Scripture um, that the Lord comes down, He condescends to our way of communicating and speaks um, to us. So I would say very simply that the natural reading of the text would lead us to think that yes, God does speak in this way to Joshua and in other places in the Old Testament in an audible voice. He can, and he does reveal himself in other ways, but I think that, um, I just don't see any reason to think that this was not the way that God communicated um, with Joshua. Sometimes he uses intermediaries like angels. Sometimes, a lot of times, he uses intermediaries like men, like Moses, or like Joshua. He'll speak to Joshua, and Joshua will speak to the people, or he'll speak to the priest, and the priest will speak to the people. Um, but there are times, even in the Old Testament, when God speaks to the children of Israel um, audibly. Uh, very rare, but a few times that that happens. And you'll remember even the New Testament at Jesus' baptism, um, at the transfiguration, that God actually speaks. His voice is heard um, by those present. So that's how I would answer uh, that question. Question number two. Someone asked, is it true that Jericho has never been rebuilt to this day? And this is where you need to open up your app or flip in your scriptures to the end of Joshua chapter 6. All right, so Joshua chapter 6. This is where uh, this question um, comes from. Uh, we covered this uh, several weeks or months ago, uh, this famous story of Jericho. And at the end of the chapter, the children of Israel um, plunder the city and they burn the city with fire and keep the precious things for the Lord. Rahab the prostitute and her family are saved. Um, and then at the very end, the 
the second to last verse, verse 26, says this, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So, no, Jericho has been rebuilt, and it was even rebuilt uh, next week, where we'll see even in, in the book of Judges, that to some extent people did live in a city identified as Jericho, and throughout the scriptures there's a few times where that is the case. I just want to show you a few pictures um, to point out. These are aerial pictures today. Tel es Sultan is what we identify with the ancient city of, um, of Jerusalem, and I'm mean, sorry, Jericho. And you'll see to um, the east, this is the Jordan Rift Valley that goes to the Dead Sea, and you can definitely see how it rises to the west and goes towards the hill country where Jerusalem is. Here is the Tel, the mound. This is the ancient city of Jericho. So there it is. You can go visit it. You can go walk around. You can even sing Joshua for the Battle of Jericho as you march around the city. And you can tell it won't take you that long. It's not a massive uh, city. Here's another uh, view of it from above. And uh, here's another view that might help us as well because um, in the New Testament, we also see the city of Jericho. Um, but there are basically two or maybe even three Jerichos. So you can see how small um, the cities were at the time. And so sometimes because of a spring or because of a water source, because of a better defensible position, city would be built in the same location but just a little ways off. So even King Herod in New Testament times built his city right over here by a water source coming down from the mountains to the Jordan River. Okay, so um, there's that. Uh, so what, Jeric- what Joshua actually does is he's laying a curse down on anyone who's going to rebuild the walls of the city. Okay, so some ancient cities um, had large walls and some people lived inside of them, but many people lived... Um, outside and the farmlands around and the orchards around may have been where they lived and if there was an attack they would have retreated to the city. Um, so what Joshua is saying is if anyone's going to rebuild this city that has crumbled, that they burned, that he will pay for it essentially with his firstborn and with his youngest. And what's incredible about scripture is you go to First Kings chapter 16, which I'd encourage you to do. And if you don't have... Um, cross-references in your Bible. I don't have cross-references in mine. I write mine in. And so in Joshua 6, it says, see 1 Kings 16.34. When I go to 1 Kings 16.34, it says, see Joshua 6.26, so that I can go back and forth. But here about 550 years later, 550 years later, um, in the reign of Ahab at the time of Elijah the prophet, 1 Kings 16.34 says, in his days, Hiel of Bethel built... Jericho. So if you go back and you do a survey of what happens at the, from the end of Joshua 6 till here in 1 Kings 16, you will see Jericho mentioned. Okay, but it seems that it was a small settlement or that people lived in and around there without rebuilding the city itself. But here at the end of 1 Kings 16, we see that it's being rebuilt. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. And if you're reading fast through the scriptures, you're going to miss that. But there it is. Boom. One verse. 
at the end, a historical um, footnote it might seem, but also a picture of God's keeping his word. God faithful to the word, the curse that he spoke through Joshua 550 years before. Um, Jericho is a city now. You can see it behind me on the screen. It's a small city. It's um, one of the um, most ancient cities on the face of the earth. When you drive in to the city, it says the oldest city on earth on their little welcome to Jericho sign. Um, But there it is. There's Jericho. You can go visit it. Um, and, uh, And that's my answer to that question. So I hope that that is somewhat of a, of a help to you. Question number three. Uh, someone asked, I would like to know more about Caleb's promise of his daughter and the giving of the upper and lower springs to his daughter in Joshua 15. Was there significance to getting off of her donkey? That's a very interesting um, question. So if you go to Joshua 15, it's kind of right in the middle of um, some of those long lists of names as the tribes were given their... Uh, their allotments, but this is uh, related to uh, Caleb. And in chapter fourteen, we meet Caleb again, and he um, asks Joshua for the land that God had promised him forty-five years before. And then in chapter fifteen, um, the tribe of Judah, of which Caleb was a member, receives its land. And so, um, in Joshua chapter fifteen, uh, from about verses thirteen to nineteen, there's a little note here on a specific thing that happened during the allotment of the land. And so the question becomes um, more of what's actually happening here. Um, Caleb goes and attacks the land that that the Lord has given to him, that Joshua has allowed him to go. And um, he is attacking land where the sons of Anak lived. And these were the giants in the land that 45 years before, um, the 10 spies who disagree with Caleb and Joshua had um, shuddered and shaken and they, they came back to the camp and said, we can't take it. There's giants in the land. And Caleb and Joshua said, no, we can. The Lord is with us. And you'll remember that in chapter 14, Caleb says he's just as strong and ready to go as he was 45 years before. So you have an 85-year-old man who's just itching to go to war and get his land, set up his ranch. Um, and here we get a little historical note on what happens. And Caleb actually um, offers a prize, in one sense, of his daughter to anyone who can go up and lead, an, lead a charge and attack um, the stronghold. Uh, David does something similar to this um, when he takes Jerusalem. Saul does something very similar to this when promising his daughter to anyone that can defeat Goliath. Um, and so this is uh, somewhat of, uh, of a custom we see in the scriptures. And so Caleb's giving... I mean, this might just seem really vulgar and base, but he's giving his daughter as incentive for attacking the land. Hey, any young man want to get married to my daughter? You want to become a part of my family? Go ahead and take the land. If you can, you get a wedding. Okay? So that's what's going on here. Um, Othniel, who we'll read about next week in Judges, captures it, and Caleb does what he said, and he gives Oxa, his daughter, to his wife. And then we get this interesting note in verse 18. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. So seems that she's urging her husband, Othniel. And then she herself gets off her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing since you have given me the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And so in the Negev, in the south of Israel, this is um, a wilderness land. There's not as much water. And so it's good to have a spring on your land. So um, daddy gave her and her new hubby some land, but she uh, maybe 
from what we can tell here, wants a better water source and so asks dad for a little bit more land and asks for the springs. And she gets off her donkey. I don't know what that means. It might just be a historical note that she rode up on a donkey and got off and asked. Um, we might be seeing just um, the great faith of Caleb reflected in the great faith of his daughter who has the guts to go up and ask for more and ask for more land and Caleb gives it to her. Um, so I don't think there's any special significance. I don't know of any cultural custom about getting off the donkey that has any significance to that text. All right? Okay, question number four. This is a very good one. Does Joshua serve as a type of Christ? If so, how does Joshua resemble Jesus? And is there an element of spiritual conquest modeled? Um, a, a type, for those of you that have never run across this, um, is... Uh, taken from a Greek word, tupos, that means pattern or example. In fact, it's used in the New Testament that way. So when Paul says um, that he's to be an example or that Christians are being an example to those around him, he's using this word type, be a type. Um, in biblical studies, it's, it's meant to um, see something in the Old Testament, a person or a place or sometimes an event um, that is prefiguring or foreshadowing something that is to come as God rolls out his plan of redemption. So if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see a lot of this kind of thing. Um, The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about the tabernacle and the altar and the sacrifices. And in those, he leads us from the Old Testament law that God gave and leads us into seeing how Jesus fulfills those things. And so the sacrifices... Um, are a prefigurement, are a shadow um, that they're realized in Jesus. And so when Jesus comes along, um, we go, oh, look at that. Look at, look at the altar and look at the sacrifice and look how Jesus is like a lamb led to the slaughter. Um, look at how he is like a Passover lamb. And so we see kind of these patterns in the Old Testament that are rolled out and completed um, or filled in in the New Testament. Now this can also be really dangerous. Um, so you can have people that find types everywhere. Um, and so my, my exhortation would be, if you're ever reading about types or dealing with these things, um, if the New Testament tells us it's a type, that's really helpful. Okay, there's a type. And from the places that it does tell us, we can kind of get a little example and pattern of how to find them. Um, general rule of thumb, I don't think we ought to read the Old Testament overly concerned about finding types, but when they're revealed to us or shown to us in the New Testament, we ought to take note and go look them up. Um, The big reason that this is asked is because, I didn't include this in the question, is because Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Um, Joshua is the Hebrew name and Jesus is the Greek name. So if you were walking around with Jesus in New Testament times and you spoke Hebrew, you would say, hey, did you hear Joshua's teaching? Did you see Joshua heal that man? Did you see Joshua go to the temple and overthrow? So that's Jesus and Joshua, same exact name. Same exact name. So the people in the time of Jesus, wouldn't. it would have just been natural to them. His name is Joshua. Um, because of the different languages and because of how it comes across in English, we have a difference, Joshua and Jesus, but they're the same exact name. And so that would lead us to go, hmm, is there a connection here? And I think that it would be um, in line with us to say, yeah, there, there's something going on here. However, the New Testament only makes one mention uh, of anything like this that I'm aware of, um, and that's in the book of Hebrews. Uh, so if you'll turn there really quickly, I just want to show you this. 
Um, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. The book of Hebrews is concerned with showing how Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the law. Um, It's about the supremacy, the preeminence of Jesus. And so in doing that, it shows us what the Old Testament was uh, hinting at and was showing and was getting towards. So the point of the Old Testament is to get to Jesus. Right, so sometimes you're know, wondering, like, why am I reading through Second Chronicles, and this king's awful, and this king's awful, and this king's not as awful, and this one's worse, and this, what are we doing? Well, I think part of what we're doing is showing that there is a need for a good, righteous, just king who will fulfill the promises of God and will fulfill the expectations of the Jewish people. And the book of Hebrews really helps us to see that. So in the end of chapter 3 of Hebrews, and the beginning of chapter 4, um, the author is taking us back to the wilderness, back to the wanderings. Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, and he's showing through all of these things um, how Jesus um, fulfills uh, some of like the tabernacle. Jesus is greater than Moses. Um, and then he begins to talk about um, the rest. And in um, the book of Psalms, the psalmist wrote, uh, look at verse 7 of chapter 3, Today, if you hear his voice, God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So the psalmist is saying, now today, if you hear God, and that's not necessarily saying if you wake up in the night and hear God speaking to you, but if you hear what God is saying in the worship of Israel and the scriptures that you memorize as a young person, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts like, going back to past history, like our ancestors did in the wilderness. And then kind of goes um, through that and talks about God's punishment. Because God's punishment of the people of Israel was those that disobeyed in the wilderness would not go into the land. And so what, what could have been a six-week jaunt across the wilderness and into the land ended up being a 40-year wandering. And two people made it through, right? Joshua and Caleb. And everybody else who was of age when the rebellion happened died in the wilderness. They were buried in the wilderness. They did not enter my rest, verse 11. So then um, the author of Hebrews begins to, to take this and continue to develop it. So you'll see even in verse 15, he repeats what he's already said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 4, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And he begins to repeat some of these things. Um, when you get to verse 8, you see Joshua finally. In fact, this is only one of two, I think, references to Joshua in the entire New Testament. The author of Hebrews says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's a whole lot more going on here than I can, than I can get into this morning. But I think here we're seeing Joshua, historical Joshua, in the book of Joshua, led the people into the land of promise. They conquer, they take the land, um, and they did not actually enter the rest that God had promised. But as the book of Hebrews goes on, we see someone who does lead the people of God into the rest of God, and that's Jesus, whose name also happens to be Joshua. And so I think as we read the book of Joshua, we can be careful. Um, I don't know if I would go so far as that third question there. Is there an element of spiritual conquest modeled? Perhaps, I don't think the New Testament gives us much direction there, so I would be hesitant to, to go there without the New Testament guiding us into that. But I think that Joshua does serve as a type 
of Jesus. It's a little bit of a pattern, a little bit of an example. And I think that Jesus fulfills um, some of the things that Joshua speaks about um, in the book of Joshua. So if that's totally confusing, please write me a note and say, that was very confusing, I didn't understand, and I'll try and see if I can do better uh, in personal correspondence. Okay? Next question. Rahab was deceptive about knowing where the men went. The men were, and this is in Joshua chapter 2. How does this balance with God saying, lie not to one another? When is it permissible to be deceptive, or is it? And of course, this is an age-old question. Um, this comes up in ethical discussions, like the Nazis knock on your door and ask, are you hiding any Jews? Um, I don't know who told me this, but I heard this this week, um, that... Uh, that there, that someone, I don't know if it's the Ten Booms or someone in during the, uh, the time of the Holocaust, but the, the Jews were hidden under the kitchen table, but underneath the floor. And so when the Nazis came and said, are there any Jews? The father of the house would say, yeah, they're under the table. And the men would look under the table and just see a floor or a carpet or something. And so he was not lying to them because they were under the table, right? So there's a different ways of ethically, how do we deal with a question like that? Is it permissible to lie? Is that okay? Um, I'm not going to take us necessarily back to Joshua 2 here. You can look if you want. Rahab lies to the king. Um, she lies to the king about where the men are. Um, I went back and listened to Pastor Ron's message. And Pastor Ron gave basically four options for how to deal with this. And there are different views. And so um, maybe at lunch today you guys want to talk about this and kind of role play through this. But um, here are some of the things that the Pastor Ron um, told us. There's one um, uh, way of resolving this called conflicting absolutes or the lesser of two evils. Um, and basically if, you have give, if you're given two conflicting principles, um, two things that are an absolute um, confliction, they're not, they can't be resolved, it's either you lie or you kill essentially, is what the, the issue comes down to here. Which do you do? And this principle, the conflicting absolutes or the lesser of two evils, is you, you commit the lesser sin. And so this would be commit the lesser sin, repent of your sin, and God will forgive you because you were serving a higher, a higher good. Okay, so to save life, you committed a sin by lying, but you, you'll confess your lie and God will forgive you. Okay, so that's one view. Another one, um, it's called graded absolutism or hierarchicalism. So there's a hierarchy of, um, of sins. There are greater and lesser, so it's very much related to the first one. Um, but basically, this one says, if you commit a lesser sin um, in order to serve a greater good, it's not actually sin. So it is not sin to sin in order not to sin. <laughs> okay? Um, so that's, one, that's another view. Another view is called non-conflicting absolutes. And this one would say that there's always a third way. Um, they would say it's false to say it's either lie or save the spies. Um, and so this, this principle would say you just need to obey God and he can save the spies in any way he so desires, but you're, you're called to tell the truth. Um, as, a, as, as a follower of God, you need to be like God. God cannot lie. And so we need to follow in, in his footsteps and tell the truth and let the chips fall where they may, knowing that God is in charge of the universe and it's not chance. Um, so this is the, the position that Ron came down on, that when you are asked whether or not something is the case, um, that you ought to tell the truth. There's a fourth kind of a, it might be a sub point or a fourth point, but it's called the right to truth forfeiture. 
meaning that some people have forfeited the right to hear the truth. And so in the case of the Nazis or in the case of of something like that, that because they are evil and pursuing evil, um, and because you are a person of, of following God and you want to do justly as God does justly, that you have no, you, you are not required to speak the truth to people that are seeking to commit evil. And so this would be um, a, a kind of a way out that it's okay to withhold the truth. And so the, the perspective here would have been Rahab could have just stayed silent. Or... Um, Rahab could have said, come in and see for yourselves and prayed like crazy that God would keep the men hidden and that they wouldn't look. Okay, so um, more, more recent times, this came to light um, when uh, there was the Iron Curtain in Russia and Eastern Europe and um, Brother Andrew and others were smuggling Bibles in and they had, to, they had to talk through these very ethical issues. Do I tell the border guard that I'm here to give Bibles to these people, which is illegal in this country? Um, and you'll see, actually, there were various ways of going about this, and, um, and, and God did some interesting things in different ways, and sometimes, miraculously, guards would, through go, would go through bags and wouldn't see Bibles, or at times they would just let people through. Um, so this does have some real-world application and comes into to play. I think I would agree with Ron that um, the Bible calls us to be truthful, um, and we reflect God's... Um, God's attributes, God's attribute of being truthful by telling the truth. Um, that's easy to say, sitting in a church with a microphone on. Um, when the guards are in your house or when they're pulling your wife away from you or taking your children, um, I don't think there's a rational, cool way to think their way. Hold on, what were those four steps? Um, but I think that, that God rewards those um, who have faith in him. And that is what Rahab is commended for in Hebrews chapter 11. She's commended for her faith. And it, she was a new believer, if we want to label her that. Um, and she exercised her faith um, in taking the spies in. And so if you look in Hebrews and the book of James, she's actually commended for, for bringing the spies in. She's never commended for lying. The Bible does not say, way to go Rahab, you lied so the spies didn't die. The Bible says Rahab exercised great faith by, by having the spies come in and then by making a confession that your God is the true God, not the God that I've been following. That might be a good lunch discussion to kind of wrestle through, kind of throw that out on the table and start to talk about how that looks. All right? Oh, there, oh sorry. There they are. <laughs> I should have had those up so you could take notes, but we're going to go ahead. Okay, this one is difficult and long. Uh, I will try to get through it and get to some more. To what extent is the Old Testament principle of you obey God, you get blessed, you disobey God, you get cursed, apply in our current new covenant living? This, the question is, how do we as new covenant believers, how do we, after Jesus, after the cross, how do we look at the Old Testament and apply what the Old Testament is saying to our lives? Um, and so this is a big, big interpretive question. Um, you'll be helped if you go... Um, on the website and go look at uh, uh, the um, Playing With Fire Sunday School series that we did and we talked about different genres of the Bible and how do in- you interpret a, a psalm, you inter- interpret poetry different than you interpret a genealogy, right? Um, and so you interpret different portions of Scripture in different ways to help you understand what's going on and that would play a big role in what we're, what we're doing here. Um, it is true that this is one of the biggest things that I think Christians, especially in America, have a problem with 
because we like to take the Old Testament passages um, that we like and that look good and apply them to our lives um, directly and then ignore the ones that we don't like, like don't eat pork, right? <laughs> we don't like that one, so we kind of ignore that one. But there are other laws or things in the Old Testament we look at and we go, oh yeah, that's a good one. Um, and this is where it takes, um, it takes getting into God's word and reading God's word and seeing what God has to say about his word. And this is where reading the New Testament and seeing how the New Testament authors reference, apply, quote the Old Testament. Um, this, is, this, is, this is where that, that comes into play. Okay, so Jesus on the road to Emmaus kind of chastises these two disciples um, and says... You know, you foolish of heart, didn't you see in the scriptures that you had that this must happen? And then he goes into the Old Testament and shows them himself. They don't know it's Jesus, but he shows them about the Messiah from the Old Testament. So I think in that regard, we can go into the Old Testament and look and see, but it's going to take some um, sophistication. It's going to take some learning. It's going to take years of just getting into God's word. It's going to take, depending on other wise people, counsel from um, guys that have studied and to read the books in our library um, and start to figure out how to do this. Um, some of the passages that were quoted would be like from Joshua um, 1, 7, and 8, where God promises to Joshua that if he does not turn from the right hand or to the left hand from the law, that he will have good success. Um, it also says in the, like, quotes the book of Deuteronomy, remember we read the curses? One, one side read the curses, and one side read the blessings. And so there are curses on the children of Israel um, if they disobey, and there are blessings if they obey. Uh, I think one place I would go to answer this kind of huge overarching question um, is that the Old Testament does not seem to me to be that cut and dry. It seems that this is a... Um, a little overly simplistic because I would look at people in the Old Testament like Job, who does obey God, and yet seems to have a pretty horrible life for a while. Um, look at David, who's anointed by Samuel. Um, he defeats Goliath. He becomes Saul's armor bearer. He becomes the greatest general in Saul's army. And then he spends 10 years of his life on the run from King Saul, who's trying to kill him. Right, So I don't think that David gets anointed with oil and goes, you know what, someday I'm going to have to run for my life for 10 years because God's anointed me to be the next king. So I think there's a little more nuance, a little more um, gray in the Old Testament. Look at Joseph. Right, Joseph um, might be a little naive as a younger brother, but he's certainly um, not uh, a wicked person who's turning his back on God, and yet he's sold into slavery. Um, when he resists another man's wife coming on to him, he's thrown in jail. When he interprets a man's dream and that man gets out of jail, that man forgets about him for two years. Uh, Thirteen years of Joseph's life are in slavery or in prison. Um, he didn't turn from God in those times. And so I think that we can find examples on both sides um, of the aisle. But I think the biggest distinction we need to make is that the promises in the Old Testament are first and foremost to a specific people living in a specific place in a specific time. Okay, so when God is dealing with the children of Israel, he is dealing with a family that he chose. God did not choose the Assyrians. He did not choose the Babylonians. He did not choose the Egyptians. He chose the Israelites. And so when he is dealing with a people that are 
Um, they're, 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 they, they constitute a culture. They constitute a specific religion. They constitute a nation, state in some ways. And so the Old Testament is dealing with a people living in a specific place that need laws on which to live. What do we do if we accidentally kill this guy? What happens if my daughter gets leprosy? How do we think about farming? And, what do, and so those are issues that are dealt with um, with God's people in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes in the New Testament, um, and he begins to prepare the way for the gospel to go forward to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, there's a pivot in, in history. The way that God works pivots and it moves. Um, it, it's a, a new covenant. It's a new era. Um, in the book of Hebrews, uh, it starts with God spoke through, through prophets, but now in these times he's spoken through his son. And so there is a paradigm shift at Jesus. And now what we're dealing with, how many of you are Jews? Any Jews here this morning? Any Jewish blood? Three people. Okay. Alright, so praise the Lord. The gospel went to the Gentiles, right? Because that's 99% of us. Okay? Um, but when the gospel did go out to the Gentiles, now we're not dealing with a single nation. Okay? Now we're dealing with the nations. And so God begins to shift the way that he is working. So when we read the Old Testament, we are reading about the children of Israel first and foremost. So we understand first what it meant before we understand what it means. Does that make sense? We have to know what it meant to them before we can appropriate it to our lives. So Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is a great example. Right? For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, give you a future and a hope. Okay? That's a great promise. It was not promised to you. Now I think there's a general application that does God know the plans he has for you? Certainly. Are they to prosper you? In the end, yes. Very much so. You get God um, and eternal life. Um, but if you read the verses around that verse, Jeremiah is speaking to an exiled people who've been taken away from their land and are now living apart from all the promises of God. So the Jews are now living hundreds of miles away in modern-day Iraq, and they've got to be thinking, how do we do this? The temple's gone. The ark's gone. Who are the priests? Who are the Levites? What happened to the northern tribes? How do we worship God? How do we follow God's law and God's instruction? And Jeremiah gives them a promise. In fact, in the verses before that, he tells them to stay there in Babylon. Prosper there. Work for the good of that city. Because if you work for the good of that city, you'll work for your own success. So he begins to tell the people that are in exile, here's what's going on, here's the harsh reality. And then he says, but God does have a plan for you. He knows the plans he has for you. And so specifically, that promise is first and foremost to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time. And then there's secondary, secondary application to our lives. Um, and so we, we would do that with the Proverbs too, right? When we go into the book of Proverbs, um, the Proverbs are not promises, right? Raise up a child in the way... Wow, I totally butchered that one, right? And when he's old, he will not depart from it. Anyway, I mean, does that, does that struggle for anybody? <laughs> when they're old, they have departed from it? You've seen it? Well, it's not a promise. It's a general, it's a generality, right? It's a proverb. It's saying generally this, this happens and this is what happens, right? So if you're, if you're uh, frugal with your wealth, you'll still have it, right? That's, that's a general principle that is most of the time true. Unless you get robbed or unless you live in a society where there is no justice system and where there's havoc, okay? So, that does not mean you say, you know what, Lord, I, I stewarded your money well, and when the warlord came in and destroyed our village, your promise failed. 
Well, no, the proverb was a general um, way to live by. It's an axiom to live by. So when we read the Old Testament, we're reading a book that was originally written to a specific people in a specific place at a specific time, which is why the men in this room have violated the law by shaving the sides of their head, why many of you have had sausage in the last week, which is why many of you are wearing clothing of two different kinds of material, and you're in violation of the Old Testament law. Right? So this is, this is, this is what we have to, to deal with when we're reading the Old Testament. Um, I think we do value the Old Testament and read it. It is a book for us. Um, I like to say this sometimes. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. Right? So it wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. And we could, you could argue about how that comes across. But um, I think in general that that is true. Jesus... His Bible was the Old Testament. Jesus quotes the Old Testament. And the New Testament writers help us to see the Old Testament, help us to see the Old Testament um, in, in a proper New Covenant light. So we as Gentiles, most of us, can look at the Old Testament and see, okay, so this does not apply anymore. But that does not mean there's nothing in it for me. Right? That doesn't mean there's nothing in it for me. Um, it might mean you have to dig a little. It might mean it's not readily apparent. I do think we ought to not think that um, if we do right and obey, that we will always be spared from any trouble. In fact, I don't think the I don't think the people of Israel believe that either. I don't think God's promise meant there would never be any miscarriages or that there would never be any accidental deaths because the law makes room for accidental deaths, right? So you wouldn't move into the land of Israel as an Israelite and say, "Well, we're obeying God; God's blessing us." but this child was born with this kind of disability, right? That, that doesn't mean that, that God is making life perfect for the Israelites. It means he's blessing them, generally. Okay. <laughs> if you're totally confused, please talk to me afterwards. Here's a good one. Joshua 22, the altar, remember this? The east and the west and almost a civil war. Well, um, come back next week, okay? <laughs> because... I looked in multiple, multiple, multiple resources and I don't have an answer for this question yet, but I'm going to be preaching on Judges next week and the question deals with Joshua and Judges, so I'm going to try to answer it next week, okay? So what do we do with this altar business when God actually tells Gideon in in Judges 6 to build an altar and to offer a sacrifice on it? It seems that Deuteronomy 12 and Joshua 22 say that that can't happen. So we'll get back to that next week, Lord willing. Oh my goodness. Okay, well... I've got a minute to answer these last two. How does God's command to wipe out the Canaanites line up with his desire that none should perish? Or Jesus' command to love your enemies? It doesn't seem like God gave the Canaanites a chance. Related to that, this is a fantastic question. I'm, I'm somewhat frustrated I can't get to it, and I'm somewhat relieved. <laughs> um, <laughs> just being honest. How do we explain to an unbeliever, that's the key phrase there, the difference between ISIS's violent killings in the Middle East right now and what we read in Joshua, right? So this is an apologetics question, right? You Christians say this, that you're, you know, that Jesus is, God is love and that Jesus came to love people and, and this, but look at your Old Testament. Look at all this wickedness. Look at all this, look at all this genocide. Look at all of this. How, how can you even justify this in the face of militant Islam is the same thing as Christianity, okay? So that would be something that is said. And this is something that you should wrestle with. God, God does say some pretty um, incredible things about who they were to slaughter and who they were to not allow to live, okay? Uh, principle drawn from Romans 1. 
Um, in fact, I'll just read it so I don't butcher this, and we'll end here. And I'm sorry that I can't quite get to this. But um, Romans 1, Paul says something that I think that should govern the way that we look at the problem of evil. Look um, at whether or not someone is innocent or someone has had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Romans 1.18, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, suppress it, keep it under wraps, push it away. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Here's a key phrase. So they are without excuse. This is not an easy one. And this is something that we need to wrestle with and look at. But if you continue to read there, Paul indicts basically every culture on earth for worshiping the creature rather than the creator. For turning from what God has clearly made known to them and saying, no, I'd rather go chop a tree down, use half of it for firewood and the other half to make an idol that I'm going to bow down, put food in front of, even though I'm the one that cut down the tree to make the idol. Right, So he's saying, in your idolatry, you've become stupid, you've become foolish, you've turned your back on God who has plainly made himself known, and so you're without excuse. So the age-old missions question, what about the innocent man in Africa who's never heard the gospel? There is no innocent man in Africa. He's never heard the gospel, and that is a tragedy, and that's on the church. But he's not innocent, because he was born in sin, and all his life has chosen to sin against God just like you and I would if it weren't for the grace of God. There are vast differences between jihad um, in the Muslim faith and what's going on here in the book of Joshua. For example, I'll end with this. Um, This is an isolated time when God tells the people of Israel to take out the Canaanites so that they can move into the land that he has given to them. Um, And it is given to a specific time. The, The... the Christians in the Crusades totally butchered these scriptures and made them apply to themselves and they would go and wipe out and free the land of Canaan from the Muslims. Um, We have no mandate to wipe out anybody or to advance the gospel by the sword. The beauty of Christian missions today and for the last 2,000 years is that men and women have been willing to die that they've been willing to take their families into harm's way to tell other people about Jesus, and they've had their throats slit, they've, had, they've watched their spouses die in front of them, and they've done it because Jesus loves the whole world. Um, the Muslims who twist and practice this jihad would say that it applies to all Muslims at all times against all infidels. And that's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does not teach us to do holy war against Canaanites. It was already done. Okay, so that, that's, that's not going to solve the problem. That's not going to convince the atheist. Uh, but that's a place to start and to begin to think about these things. There is a difference between Christianity's claims and Islam's claims. With that, we've got to end, and we're going to go to our Sunday school hour. Let me pray, and um, we'll ask the Lord to bless whatever just happened. <laughs> okay? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it. Thank you that it's clear. Thank you that we have um, a library here on campus. Thank you that we have um, incredible resources on the internet. Thank you that we have 
the freedom to read and to study and in this country that we have um, the freedom to debate. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be voracious readers of the Bible because we believe and know that it is your words to us, that you have spoken and you are speaking through the Bible to us. Lord, help us not to ignore that gift. Help us to be careful um, where we derive our authority from, that we would not derive our authority from um, the news or from other sources, but that we would derive authority from your word. Lord, guide us as we do have questions. We do have doubts. We do have struggles. We do um, come to things in the Bible that we just don't understand and cannot reconcile. God, help us to, um, to have faith and to um, practice that faith in action in community groups, um, even around lunch this, more, this afternoon. Help us to, to talk about these things and to be honest and to, um, to dig into your word. Help us not to look for answers um, uh, primary answers anywhere else but in your word and then help us to use outside sources um, to help illuminate what you have revealed to us. God, we, we thank you. Um, we thank you that though we don't understand everything and though there are difficulties in the scriptures that we are crystal clear on the fact that you loved us and you sent your son to live in our place, to die in our place, to rise, to um, promise us that we will rise just as Jesus did. And one day we will not wrestle with these things because we will see you face to face and we will have the best Q&A time of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.